0: I have found Outbeat News In-Depth for you.
1: Good evening and welcome to Outbeat News In-Depth. I'm Greg Moralia. Well, last month during our coverage of the 2015 Matthew Shepard Foundation Honors event, you heard from the Maine's family and you heard them talk about their transgender daughter, Nicole, their unconditional love as a family, and how they overcame the many struggles and challenges from those who didn't understand them. They tell their story in a brand new book just released this month called Becoming Nicole. And tonight, Pulitzer Prize winning author Amy Nutt and Nicole's dad Wayne Mains are both here to tell us more about this incredible story. And in the second half of our hour, Francis DiBernardo, director of New Ways Ministries, returns to tell us about his experience in Rome with the Pope's recent Synod, a meeting of Catholic Church leaders on the family, which included the subject of same-sex marriage and what place LGBT people have in the Church. All of this is coming up next, right after your Outbeat Radio News for this Sunday, November twenty second, 2015.
0: I have found Outbeat Radio News, your source for LGBT news from the North Bay and beyond.
1: It's reported that a fugitive terrorist who's still on the run after the attacks in Paris a week ago was trawling several gay bars in Brussels mere days before the coordinated attacks. 26-year-old Salah Abdeslam, who's currently being hunted by special forces, was a regular visitor to the city's gay village. Hours of closed-circuit television footage from bars in central Brussels, an area known as Jacques' Quarter, is being secured by security services. Bar owners are being questioned as officers try to determine whether he was scoping out potential targets or hoping to steal customers' identification and documents. An anonymous source said, In these crowded bars, people feel open and relaxed. Stealing wallets would be not so difficult. A lot of ID cards and driving licenses were stolen over a period that he was there. But it may not have been because he wanted to launch a terror attack. Salah was a getaway driver for one of the suicide squads during last Friday's attack. He swore he'd never give himself up after being spotted in Brussels. A contact claims he was blindfolded and led to the terrorists at the bolt hole on Tuesday evening, which is believed to be somewhere in the Molendek district. The source said I met Salah on Tuesday night. He is here in Brussels, but not for long. He told me that he has gone too far. He is now overwhelmed by what happened and cannot give himself up because there will be consequences for his family. Abdeslam allegedly told the source that it had rented both an apartment in Paris and the cars used in Friday's attacks. On Thursday, it was reported that Abdeslam is a gambling addict and visited the main casino in Brussels over 20 times in the month leading up to the attack. While playing the tables, he apparently had a string of one-night stands. After being fired from his job as a bus driver, Abdeslam reportedly radicalized in January 2011. Anti-terror units continue hunting for the man known as Public Enemy Number 1. And here in the U.S., this week the FBI released their annual report on hate crimes reported in 2014. There were 9% fewer of these hate crimes reported overall, but hate crimes motivated by the victim's sexual orientation remain the second most common bias motivation— at 1,017 reported crimes. There were 131 crimes committed because of the victim's gender identity, 98 of which involved a transgender or gender nonconforming victim. 63% of the reported hate crimes involved a crime of violence. California recorded a 12% drop in reported hate crimes in 2014. Sexual orientation was also the second most common bias motivation in our state. LGBT civil rights groups believe that hate crimes continue to be dramatically underreported, although California law requires law enforcement to report hate crimes to the Department of Justice. Reporting to the FBI remains voluntary. And Philadelphia Mayor Michael Nutter signed a new law yesterday on the 2015 Transgender Day of Remembrance that requires all single-occupancy restrooms in bars and restrooms to be designated as gender-neutral. The new law takes effect on January 16th. The religious right has had recent success in overturning or defeating proposed LGBT non-discrimination laws by claiming the laws will allow men in women's restrooms. Supporters say that making the restrooms gender-neutral is inclusive of transgender people who often face harassment in public restrooms. By removing the gender designation, it removes the impetus for strangers to judge whether the gender-nonconforming person is using the correct restroom. And here locally, the 25th Annual Holiday Benefit Concert, supporting face-to-face and performed by the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus, will happen on Sunday, December 6th at the Wells Fargo Center. This festive and heartwarming, simply not-to-be-missed extravaganza starts at 3 p.m. on Sunday, December 6th. Tickets are $19 to $50 and available now at the Wells Fargo Center for the Arts box office or online at wellsfargocenterarts.org. Now, here's your calendar of events for the coming week. On Monday, November 23rd at 5.30 p.m., the Marin AIDS Project will host its monthly Mix-It-Up at the Four Point Sheridan 1010 Northgate Drive in San Rafael. And on Tuesday, November 24th, the Santa Rosa Senior Group will meet at the Unitarian Universalist Congregation at the Glacier Center in Santa Rosa. And also on Tuesday, That's Amore, an Italian give-back Tuesday buffet dinner will take place at the Rainbow Cattle Company in Guerneville, 6 to 8 p.m. The proceeds will benefit the Russian River Sisters Community Holiday Dinner. You can learn more at rrsisters.org. For more information about LGBT events happening here in the North Bay, go to gaysonoma.com. And for all the latest LGBT news headlines, go to our website at outbeatnews.com. Be sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for updates from Outbeat Radio News all week long. For Gary Carnavelli, I'm Greg Morelia.
0: Outbeat Radio News, your source for LGBT news from the North Bay and beyond.
1: Imagine adopting twin boys and having one discover and begin to identify as a little girl. There aren't a lot of parents out there with this kind of experience, and I'd guess most wouldn't even know what to do, but Kelly and Wayne Maines figured it out from the very beginning and showed unconditional love for their children, one of whom became their beautiful daughter, Nicole. They share their extraordinary story in a brand new book just released this month called Becoming Nicole, written by Pulitzer Prize-winning author, Amy Nutt. Amy and Wayne, welcome to the show.
2: Great to be here.
1: Glad to be there. So, Amy, let's start with you. How did you come to meet this amazing family?
2: Well, um, it was uh, really a serendipity. Um, They were being, uh, the family was being represented at the time. There was a uh, a lawsuit. Uh, This was in 2011, 2012, uh, just after an article had appeared in the Boston Globe about the family. And... They were kind of fending off a lot of uh, publicity requests at that point because they just wanted to concentrate on raising their kids, but knew that uh, down the line that perhaps they wanted to tell their story in a bigger format. So um, their lawyer, Jennifer Levy, was someone uh, that I had known in Boston many years earlier in a former life as an academic, and she contacted me, and uh, the rest is history.
1: Well, that's great.
2: Wayne, how
1: old were your then two boys when you and Kelly adopted them
2: for
3: for uh basically uh at about uh five months
1: okay, so you had them really from the very beginning
3: that's right essentially the, yes and uh, it was uh, it was an interesting time
1: so tell us about nicole's development. I mean, I understand from what you told us at the Matthew Shepard Foundation dinner that she began to express her gender and the fact that she was a girl very early on. What, what do you remember about that?
3: Well, for me, the earliest memory, and I think Amy really presents it well in the book, is Nicole and her diapers. Um, her mother was would do kickboxing in our farmhouse and. Nicole would be there in her diaper with a Barbie in her hands shaking the hair back and forth and uh, mimicking a Kelly kickboxing. And uh, that couldn't have been more than two. And you didn't really think of it as any big deal then. But when you look back and you look at all the video, the, the signs and the symptoms were there. You know, signs are things we see and symptoms are things that People described to you, and when she was old enough to talk, then we started um, experiencing symptoms of, Daddy, this is who I really am.
1: And this is, what, 17 years ago now, right?
3: Yeah, it, it was a long time ago. So so, was,
1: so there was no Laverne Cox, there was no Caitlyn Jenner, there was not a real visibility at all, not that there's a great visibility now, of, of transgender people How did how did you work through that? What did you make of that? Did you have an understanding right from the beginning about what was going on, or I I had no
3: understanding. I avoided it like the plague. Um, Kelly really reached out and started to look on the internet, and there was nothing. And it's only been in the last few years that there's been anything for transgender children, and there's one of the reasons. That I really appreciate the book is to get it in the hands of people that, because they're starting to understand that transgender adults exist, but they can't wrap their head around that a three year old really knows who they are. You hear this craziest things like, I wanna be, you know, Buzz Lightyear, and I wanna be, you know, whoever, and that's just dreams. Well, not when it's in your soul. In every waking moment, you're trying to be who you need to be. You and I always knew we were guys. And can you imagine somebody every day telling you, that no, you're not? And, and that's, that's just brutal to think about how much these young kids are suffering.
1: Well, you're, you're right. I can't imagine that. I mean, I've said many times to even my students that I understand cognitively gender identity and gender dysphoria. But until you've lived it, I don't think you can truly understand what that's like and, and the realization of that conflict inside I can't even imagine what that's like. So talk about steps. I mean, it's clear you were supportive as a family from the very beginning. How did you begin to work through this? I mean, obviously, Nicole's very young at this point. As she began to grow up, what steps did you take to help guide her realization that she's a girl?
3: Well, I think it's really important that, that people understand that I wasn't very supportive in the beginning. and And that's, you know the first six chapters I think Amy beat the crap out of me you know so <laughs> yeah. but I did I had a great recovery but it wasn't that I didn't love my child I loved my babies both of them but uh... I just didn't understand it and I and there wasn't a lot of research and support and even the counselors that we started with had no clue how to deal with a young transgender child or non-conforming child that's another thing that's important that People understand that every child that's non-conforming at age three and four isn't going to be transgender. It's you have to let them grow and be who they need to be, and then they'll then they'll figure it out and tell you who they are. Um, but in the beginning, man, I really struggled, and and I tried to stay with the counselors and gender neutral. But Nicole was such a strong personality, and thank goodness that she had a mom who had the strength and the courage to let her be who she needed to be, or I would have really screwed it up.
1: Hmm. And so how did Jonas grow into this? Nicole's twin brother, how did he grow into this understanding? Well,
3: he never had to grow into it. He always understood it. That's the amazing thing about kids. Their generation has babies. They don't care. And, of course, they're identical twins and they're bonded. And he never really, never really had to understand it.
1: Huh. But that wasn't true for the schools. I remember you talking and Jonas and Nicole talking a lot about the torment that both of them endured at school, Nicole in particular. Tell us a little bit about that.
3: When we started school, we knew it wasn't going to be easy, but we were up for the challenge. And there was innocent questions and there was teasing and bullying and uh, because it was so new. And then sometimes there's just mean kids out there. But that was all manageable. And no child, transgender, or any other should have to deal with bullying and harassment. It just breaks my heart. Um, but as she got older, and it really became more um, targeted, the, the, the Christian, right, got involved. And they came and showed up at our school and our town meeting with cameras and attorneys and all hell broke loose. And that's, that's where, uh, I mean, that was the last straw for me. That was, I mean, I really got involved after that. And, and um, not long after that, um, you know, we had to go into hiding to protect our kids. Wow. Nobody, sh- nobody should have to do that.
1: No, you're absolutely right. And refresh, refresh my memory on what town this was all going on in, what part of the country
3: it's in Orno Maine, it's where I'm still here, I still work here i you know I live two hours north of where Kelly and the kids live, and I've lived here alone since two thousand and nine because I have to work
1: wow wow, hmm. wow, wow, and so the resolution wasn't that some legal action happened to force the school to comply to provide the kind of support and facilities Nicole needed. it was you had to leave.
3: Yeah, the solutions were unbearable. Um, she was ostracized and uh, segregated to a staff bathroom. And and, that, and maybe Amy can talk a little bit about that too, what's going on across the nation, that that seems to still be their solution in many states, a uh, gender-neutral bathroom just for transgender kids. And, uh, you know, that's unacceptable. There was a time in Maine that they thought that was the solution, and of course, we cracked
1: that. And, and how did you go? How did that happen?
3: We won our court case. It took five years, and uh, in Maine, everybody gets to use the bathroom and locker room that they identify with. That it's state law.
1: So that's pretty incredible. You engaged in this in this court battle, obviously to support Nicole, but really in doing so, supported all the other trans kids that are out there. Was it tough finding a legal firm to take this on to support you?
3: It was in the beginning. Um, I'll never forget, I wrote to every major LGBT uh, group in the country. I mean, we, we had our own attorney, and we were pretty much out of money. And Mr. Conservative, I wrote to the National Lesbian Association, the Association Transgender Law Center, everybody and their brother, and, they were all, they, they responded, they knew, and uh, they were supportive, but I'm not sure. I'm not, and it was finally amazing. I'll never forget it. It was a Sunday. We met with a, a local attorney, Jody Knofsinger, who happens to be a board member of the ACLU. And uh, we went to her office. And she's not a civil rights attorney, she's just an amazing person, attorney. And she said to me, I'm going to work with Glad, and I'm going to take your case, and Glad's going to support you, and I need you to quit playing attorney.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And I broke down. It's still amazing, mm-hmm. the, pe- the people that stepped up to help us. mm mm-hmm. So—
1: And that's refreshing to hear because, you know, looking back in the years when I'm picturing this all happened, there was sort of a divide going on in the LGBT community. There were political movements at the federal level uh, where the HRC and other organizations were trying to get employment protection. And there was this idea that, well, you know, if if it's the trans community that's going to hold this or hold us up, then we'll separate from them temporarily and then come back and pick up the trans community later on. And that attitude just seems to be horrible. Some well uh,
3: uh, I uh I understand some of that but also I'm a political novice but I think everybody's where they need to be now well, you know one of my best friends that I met in Washington works for the human rights uh uh commission or the HRC and they're doing great things and uh, everybody every one of those groups we have to be unified and mm-hmm. and, and quite frankly gender identity and gender expression do not belong under the auspices of sexual orientation it's still written that way in law in Maine today it's 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 just where it ended up and that confuses people mm-hmm. especially when it's young people
1: yeah because they are clearly two different aspects of personality and and politically they've been combined but but clearly there are some some very different issues and very different needs uh, of the two groups one not being any more important than the other. Um, so the two kids uh, ended up moving to a new town and went into a new school. How did you know that that was the right school and that history wouldn't be repeating itself?
3: Man, Greg, that's a really powerful question because history is repeating itself all over the nation. We were we had nowhere to go. We every any school in Maine uh the profile that we had had to take us but and they had to say the right things but we would in, until there was a problem we wouldn't know whether they would support us and and there was only uh, so that through the rest of middle school we lived in hiding the school was supportive but who knows if they would have been if we had to go public because mm-hmm. it, it's a huge challenge for any administration and and uh, it wasn't until high school that we, we found an amazing high school that had the courage and, the, and management to do the right thing.
1: So when you say going into hiding, what does that look like?
3: It means sending your kids to school every day and telling them that you can't tell anybody who you are. Or if you do, that daddy might have to quit his job and will have to move. And not knowing where to move. Wow
1: that must have been that must have been really challenging for them and challenging it yeah challenging it, is an understatement
3: yeah they uh they were living a lie it was really hard it was
1: mm. so you found a new high school and you said that it was an amazing school uh and so what what changed what made the difference how did you know that they could be out and who they are
3: well we didn't start that way uh the first few weeks, but it was the kid's choice at that point, and uh, the school uh, sent a letter to all the parents in the school community and said that we have a transgender child in our community, and uh, I didn't name any names, but uh, they said, we're here to support everybody, and everybody gets to use the bathroom that they, and the locker room that they want to, And um, there were some minor issues, and they handled them. Most of them I never even knew about until later. And it was mostly innocent questions. And um, and then in 2011, that same year, uh, we came out of hiding to testify. And then uh, (laughs) there was no holding back, and the whole school was just amazing and supportive.
1: Amy, what's your sense about how common that is now around the country with other high schools. It sounds to me like this high school is pretty unique still today.
2: Uh, yeah, I think they are. Um, they basically, you know, came right out, uh, and were upfront in telling, uh, Wayne and the family that, uh, you know, the school was open and, and ready for, for their kids. Um, you know, uh, it's a private school. It had a, a very small population of students. I think that helped. Um, mm-hmm. But um, certainly it's going on across the country. And obviously, not only in schools, we know uh, we look at places like Houston, but uh, going on on all levels of, um, of government and uh, public, uh, public accommodation across the board
1: well it it's remarkable that Jonas and Nicole both came out of of this experience and and they're in college now uh, how do you think what was the key? How did they do it what 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 allowed them to blossom so amazingly well
3: Wow, well, having parents that um, allow them to be who they need to be is number one um, We made mistakes obviously in we tried to learn from our mistakes, and, and uh, we in certain days had to tell them that uh, so many transgender families, are they deal with their kids, any special need child maybe, with kit gloves on occasion. And sometimes we had to tell Nicole, you know, It doesn't matter if you're transgender, you still got to clean your room and you got to clean the house on (laughs) Sunday and you need to do your homework, you know, so um, they kind of lost track of cleaning their rooms. I've been to both their college rooms, so, um, but uh, there's some discipline involved and just consistent, consistent love and consistent reinforcement and sometimes putting the hammer down, you know, so... And all that time, they had to take care of themselves. There's so much that they told Amy that we didn't even know. Um, It's, you know, they had to take care of themselves.
1: Hmm. So Amy, as you heard the story as being told from Jonas and Nicole's perspective, what are some things that you learned from them that maybe surprised you or that you weren't expecting to hear?
2: you know i think one of the um one of the biggest surprises um, i mean they're both extraordinary kids uh nicole is a very um a very confident very positive person and i think you know one of the things that really struck me was that um right from the beginning kelly um in in trying to help nicole and of course she was known as 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 wyatt back then um Her main uh, objective was just to help her be happy and safe. That was it. So Nicole grew up never feeling that she was different or odd or um, that uh, either her mother or her father thought, uh, you know, that she was um, abnormal in any way. So she grew up always believing that things would be taken care of, and You know, and that she would get to be the the beautiful young woman she is today. And, you know, there are so many stories across the country of, and Wayne has certainly heard so many of these stories from people, um, of kids who are suicidal or who are throwaways or runaways or been rejected in so many ways. And even though, you know, Wayne struggled for a few years, these were parents who never rejected their child and, um... It, it made all the difference in the world.
1: Clearly. Uh, just, just I, I, There's not words that you can really put in to, to describe how incredible it is to watch them up on stage and hear them. Because I think you're very right. Nicole is amazingly confident. Uh, when she stepped up to the mic to start speaking, I mean, Tony and I both were completely blown away. It's like, oh, my goodness. Uh, and, and Jonas has an incredible heart for being a young man, uh, his age, uh, he knows he's so worldly already. He knows so much and uh, just both really, really impressive. I just can't say enough about that. So, as you think about all that you've learned, uh, Wayne, about our, this country, the culture of a small town, the culture of the East Coast, all that you've learned uh, now in 2015. Talk to the parents out there who are wondering if their kids might be expressing some question about their gender. What advice would you have for them?
3: I think the first thing is love your children. I mean, I know they do, and not to let their fears control their mind. Um, Jonas actually told me that when he was like 12. and uh, It's okay to be afraid, but we still have to to be open to new ideas and get the resources that we need. And that means counselors and doctors and teachers uh, and, and talk to people. And for those conservative parents and especially dads um, in other parts of the country and even here in northern Maine, um, you know, you've got to dig deeper. And we're, you know, we think we're tough guys.
0: Mm hmm.
3: But they got to dig a little deeper and uh, explore what they're afraid of. And if they can do that, you know, if they can even go out and sit in their tree stand this time of year in November in Maine, that's where I would normally be if I wasn't living alone. And I would take that time to think about, you know, how can I help that child grow? How can I reach outside my own comfort zone? And uh, support my family in ways that I might not think possible. And that means giving up a couple things. Giving mm-hmm. up some, some values that we thought were important that really aren't. Because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, like you said, seeing my two kids up on that stage it doesn't get any better than that. Mm. And every kid should have that stage. In some way in their lifetime. So Mm -hmm. get up, get off your butt, and explore your own deep inner thoughts and find out why are you uncomfortable about anything and how can you let that impact your child's growth. So,
1: And be proud of them.
3: Yeah, and be proud. Every step of the way, you know, I never never try to uh, you know, to put my child in a place where they wouldn't have high level self esteem, and I think that's probably the most important thing we can do if we can if they feel good about themselves, they're gonna be okay
1: mm. so Amy, let's get back to the book for a second. You know, uh, what are you hoping people get? What are you hoping that they learn? From reading the story,
2: gosh, um, you know, I, I think there are so many lessons of the book. Um, one of the things is that you know, uh, this is a very this this is a very ordinary family. This is a family like like your own family or like other families, you know, that you know. These are people that you. Um, that you live with, that you know, that you work with, and um, they're no different, uh, you know, than you are. And I I think that's really important for readers to um, make that connection. And, you know, I I can think of no better example than uh, a letter, an email I received today that I sent to Wayne and Kelly that was extraordinary. And it was from a man in Auckland, New Zealand, uh, who had read the book and just wanted me to know and wanted the message passed on to Kelly and Wayne that he was uh, not only moved by their story, but he was changed. That he was a conservative, uh, you know, religious man, um, believed that uh, gender was very binary, and the book changed his mind. And it, it changed his mind to the degree that, he, he owns a, a company, a tech company, and he had someone come in, interview for a job, and the person had, I guess, written on their resume that they were involved in LGBTQ uh, um, issues, and ordinarily this would have been something that might have disqualified him in the minds of uh, this employer. And he said, I hired the guy right on the spot. And he says, really? Mm-hmm. It was because of reading about the Maine's family, and it was just—it was an extraordinary letter to receive as a journalist. You know, you hope you make a difference. You hope you can move people, and it—and at it best, perhaps even change them. Um, but that was that was pretty extraordinary, and you know, I just told the story. It's the example of this family that is so powerful, um, and uh, you know. Getting messages like that means, you know, I feel like the book has hit a home run.
1: Well, I would say that it has. I mean, that's incredible. It's, it's great to get that kind of feedback. And Wayne, for you and Kelly and the kids, it must be really gratifying uh, to to hear from people around the world about how your story is impacting them after all that struggle.
3: It really is. And uh, I'll tell you, um, there's been hundreds of them, and some days y- you open your email and you just want, you just wish you could meet the people and give them a hug. You know, uh, I never was a emotional or a huggy person, but I am now, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's just amazing. That, and I think for me, the most important thing for the book is to. So people understand that we're not alone. We're just one of thousands of amazing average families out there that are going through the same thing.
1: Well, pioneers, though, in terms of being able to tell your story and, and to help educate others, because it's certainly one thing to look at celebrities like Laverne Cox and Caitlyn Jenner, but very difficult and a far stretch to make that connection with, as you describe it, a typical average family. Um and so I think that's one of the powers that 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 lies in in that book as well is it the ability to connect and see yeah this is this is just like us. Uh where can people go to get a copy of Becoming Nicole?
2: Uh, well they can go to um right away to amazon.com or barnesandnoble.com or your independent bookstore. Um you can buy it, you can download it um and it's uh obviously readily available.
1: Fantastic. We'll put a, a link to the at least the Amazon website for the book. You can go right to outbeatnews.com and click on that link and download your own copy. We've been talking with Wayne Maines and Amy Nutt about an extraordinary book. Thank you both for being on the show with us tonight.
2: Thank, Thank you. you.
1: And if you're just joining us, you're listening to Outbeat News In-Depth on KRCB Radio 91. I'm Greg Moralia. Well, it's no secret that the Catholic Church isn't exactly welcoming of LGBT people. Pope Benedict XVI wrote that homosexuals are, quote, intrinsically disordered. Catholic cardinals and bishops here in the U.S. regularly speak out condemning gay people and those who support them. But these views didn't reflect the 70% of Catholics who believe homosexuality should be accepted. And Pope Francis has signaled on several occasions a different idea about LGBT people. As we reported here on Outbeat News earlier in the month, many faiths, including the Mormons, are evolving their position on LGBT people and same-sex marriage. Here to talk about these prospects for the Catholic Church is Francis DiBernardo, director of New Ways Ministries, an LGBT pro-Catholic organization. Francis, welcome back to the show.
4: Great to be here.
1: And it's great to have you and to find out about your adventure Uh, In Rome. But for our listeners who are not familiar with New Ways Ministries and how it fits into the Catholic Church, tell us about it and your role in it.
4: Sure. Well, um, New Ways Ministry is a 38-year-old national Catholic ministry that strives to build bridges of justice and education between the LGBT community and the Catholic Church. And I had the privilege of serving as executive director of that ministry.
1: And how long have you been involved?
4: I've been involved for over 20 years. I've been the executive director for uh, almost 20 years and have been working uh, since 1994, so 22 years.
1: Wow. So you've really seen a lot of change. And when we last had you on the show, it was right after Pope Francis was elected, and we were talking about your hopes for him. As you look back now, since that time, what do you think has he fulfilled your hopes?
4: I think Pope Francis is doing a lot for the Catholic Church generally, and for LGBT people and LGBT Catholics in particular. Um, he hasn't he hasn't done the, the what we are eventually hoping for, which is you know some sort of change in practice and approach, but his tone has really set uh, a good example for pastoral ministers and priests, nuns working in the church to be more open to LGBT issues. Mm -hmm. That's an important first step, so we're happy that he's taken that first step.
1: Well, that's great. And before we get to talking about the synod, and you can explain exactly what that is when we get there, sure. let's talk about his visit to the U.S. Because it, that was very popular; it was all over the news. That was really all people were talking about while he was here, and, and he certainly attracted a lot of people. I think Catholics certainly, and, and then outside observers as well. Did you get a chance to be part of any of the any of the events or or see him?
4: Yes, I was. Uh, I was lucky enough to be able to get to the White House ceremony uh, where President and Michelle Obama uh, welcomed Pope Francis in a formal ceremony. And so I was there on the South Lawn, which was very exciting. And it was very exciting for a number of reasons, but one of them being that uh, the Obamas had invited a lot of LGBT leaders to that event. And so it was a... uh, I think an important recognition that um, that LGBT issues have really made have really reached a new level in in the, in our culture and our society here in the U.S.
1: And that's really interesting. There was some pushback from that too, uh, from some anti-LGBT groups that may or may not have been affiliated with the Catholic Church. What was the tone there in in the environment? Did the Vatican officials appear to be comfortable? Were they? Was there any yeah. noticeable difference?
4: No, I I think I think everyone, including the Vatican officials, were very comfortable with it. You know, President Obama and the White House know what they're doing, and you know they don't want to offend. You know, one of their most revered guests that they've had in. in uh, throughout his presidency. And so, you know, if he, if they didn't think that this would be okay with the Pope, I think they would not have made those invitations. I think they recognize that Pope Francis is very open to LGBT issues. He's had LGBT people uh, in other situations where he's visited other countries. Most Most recently, this summer in Paraguay, uh, the the bishops of Paraguay uh, invited an LGBT rights leader to be part of a session with the Pope. So, you know, if the, if the Paraguayan bishops knew that it would be okay, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure that the Obamas knew it would be okay.
1: Yeah, I, and it's really interesting to watch all of the... A social media commentary about that and about what the motivations were and whether the Pope knew or, or didn't know. But but it's great. I'm glad that 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 happened and I'm glad that that was the case. And one of the other stories that emerged was this secret meeting. And I put that in quotes that he had with Kim Davis, the county clerk in Kentucky, who has been, you know, fighting so desperately to not issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples. And the the rumor was that he had the Pope had a private meeting with her. Before he left at the, I guess it was the Vatican embassy. Can you shed some light on what really happened there?
4: Sure. I think I think uh, the Vatican, uh, the U.S. media, and and the, the you know the international audience in general were really uh, all blindsided by Miss Davis's lawyers, who blew up a a very minor, minor encounter with the Pope into making it sound as if it was a formal meeting, which it was not, which we learned it was not. And, you know, I think the way that the Vatican uh, responded to that, at at first I think the Vatican should have responded a lot quicker, but I think they were, uh, I think the fact that they were slow in responding means that they didn't know what was going on that this was something that someone else had planned. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I think they would have responded much quicker. Uh, And then when it came out and they confirmed that his one official audience in the U.S. with an individual was uh, with a former student of his who is gay, who came with his partner and and his family to visit the Pope. And the, the Pope hugged them both. So you know, I think it's a. I think the Kim Davis uh, incident was really a case where lawyers blew something up uh, to try to make uh, their client look more favorably in the Catholic Church's eyes than than she might be.
1: Yeah, that sounds that way, and of course, the situation was probably exaggerated more by a comment that maybe was taken out of context. Supposedly, the Pope made a comment about, uh, responded to a question as he was getting on the plane to leave about a person's right as a public official, based on religious grounds, to not do their job. I mean, that was in in, in essence. And and he suggested that civil disobedience uh, or refusing to do your job as a public official based on religious grounds was okay, almost validating Kim's position.
4: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I I think the 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 problem with that answer is that uh, you know I'm not sure that the Pope knew what what example or context the the person was asking the question right in. So you know I think it was probably in the the questioner's mind you know to think about Kim Davis and, and situations concerning same sex marriage where I think the Pope was answering very generally. You know where, you know where Catholic teaching would um, would support people's conscience, but uh, you know if if it is something that is very egregious, such as killing someone. Um, so I, I again, I think I think the Pope's comments were taken out of context, and you know he he admitted during that time that he he was not talking about anything in particular,
1: right. So, well, that's, you know, that happens all the time with folks, right? And, right? and then people will use those statements out of context to their own advantage, and it just, the timing of it just didn't play out well, and I think it created a lot of confusion for folks.
4: Yes, yes, it was really, uh, you know, the Pope was very sophisticated in his, in his speeches while he was here in the U.S., and he really, you know, navigated the minefield of American politics very, very carefully, and um, and you know really made it a pastoral visit rather than um, rather than a political visit. I
1: agree with you. I listened to his address to Congress, uh, mm-hmm. and I thought it was brilliant. It was just brilliant. It was eloquent. Uh, it was well researched. And you're right. It walked a very careful fine line that really was able to touch both sides of the aisle there, mm-hmm. uh, and gave them some. Some strong advice about their role and and how they should move forward. I thought it was great,
4: right? And you know, Pope Francis in in all of his visits, and it was true on the American visit too. He the only time he ever uses very harsh words uh, are, are when he's addressing bishops, and and that was true in the U.S. He really he. He really sent a strong message to bishops not to be so politically minded and not to be so rigid. I think that that was a very, a very telling part of his, of his agenda, that he's welcoming of all people, but he really wants the church's leaders to... To get away from their narrow-minded political points of view,
1: right? Well, he's got his hands full there because there yeah. are a lot of very outspoken cardinals and bishops who, you know, even recently are speaking out in ways that seem to be very opposite of what the pope is saying should be happening. Uh, yeah, so, you know. So, so let's let's shift to the synod first of all. What is
4: it? Okay. Well, the the synod is a. Uh, uh, a meeting of bishops, not all bishops, but bishop representatives who've been elected by the bishops in their countries, uh, to come together at the Vatican uh, to discuss a topic. In this case, it was marriage and the family. Um, and to develop a, a set of recommendations. Uh, and, and that's important. It was they make recommendations, not decisions. They make recommendations to the Pope on this topic, um, marriage and the family, and then uh, the Pope has the privilege of issuing what's called an apostolic exhortation, which is a, a document from the Pope, on the topic. And he can either accept or reject the bishop's recommendations. Um, so is so it, that's that's what the synod is. There were 270 bishops at the synod, and there were over 5,000 bishops in the world. So it was a, a very small representation of the bishops.
1: Okay, that's a that is a pretty small amount, right? A uh, representation. And is this a meeting that happens on a regularly scheduled basis, or is this
4: sort of a special event? No, the pope. The pope calls the meeting if he sees a topic that he thinks needs discussion. And I think he very wisely selected the topic of marriage and family because it is an issue of uh, uh, of great pastoral concern in the Church and where people, where the Catholic people are often very... Uh, have hold very different views about marriage, family, and sexuality than, than the bishops do. So it's it was a topic that really needed addressing. Uh,
1: yeah, I agree with you. I think there is a big divide in terms of what people in the pews think and what the leaders believe. I think I read a survey recently, just this last week, that said that 70% of American Catholics believe the church should be accepting of LGBT people. Yeah, uh, yeah,
4: that was the Pew Research Report
1: Right, and so if bishops and cardinals are at some level accepting of LGBT people uh, That certainly isn't being communicated out there in the public uh, You know, Just right after the Pope's visit, there was a cardinal on the East Coast who spoke out in a very damaging way, in my view, talking about how if you support LGBT people or you believe in same-sex marriage, that you're not entitled to communion. And for a Catholic, that's devastating. I mean, it really does pit families against supporting one another and being part of their faith. So talk about the access that you had. Were you actually in the meeting with the bishops?
4: Mm -hmm. No, none of the press... uh representatives were allowed into the meetings uh, themselves, they were closed sessions. But every day at 1 p.m. the Vatican spokesperson would bring uh, to the press room three or four bishops who would report on what was discussed uh, at the meeting that morning or the day before, and uh, and then there was opportunity to question them. and then there was also opportunity to make requests of individual bishops for interviews, and I was lucky enough to get a, a few of them as well. So,
1: so tell us about those interviews, and, and how were you received? Obviously, people know who you are and the organization that you represent.
4: I was very well received by uh, the other press representatives, by the Vatican officials, um, who uh, really made sure that I was treated just as any other re- press representative was. Uh, I was able to interview a few bishops. I interviewed, the, uh, probably the, the most extensive interview I had was with Cardinal Oswald Gracious, who is from uh, India, from Mumbai, India, and he's the president of the Indian Bishops' Conference. And I had a great interview with him about pastoral outreach to LGBT people. I was able to interview Cardinal Peter Turkson, who works at the Vatican on justice and peace issues, and I was able to interview him about the issue of LGBT people being criminalized in uh, in countries around the globe. I was able to raise that question of criminalization with an African bishop, uh, During one of the press conferences And uh, He acknowledged that The African bishops uh, Really need to grow a bit uh, In terms of their Awareness of LGBT issues
1: Yeah Because they do have a huge influence I think in in countries uh, As leaders And being silent about what's going on In places like Uganda and other parts of Africa I think is really damaging
4: Yes, yes. They they have they don't have a great record on on speaking out against uh these criminalization laws. And it's really shameful because there's nothing uh in those laws that would there's nothing in church teaching that would prevent them from opposing those laws. It would be a very Catholic, a very orthodox position to oppose them.
1: I would think so. For sure. So did you detect levels of discomfort when you posed those kinds of questions, or did they really get it?
4: <laughs> well, uh, when, I, when I asked the African Archbishop at the press conference, when I asked my question about him, and I asked him if he thought that the African bishops would support a statement from the Synod opposing criminalization. And after I asked it, there were about three seconds of, of like dead silence. You could feel a pit <laughs> drop in the room. <laughs> and after he answered, there was a journalist sitting next to me who turned to me and said, "You could feel the air go out of the room when you when you asked that question." <laughs> so, um, you know, they. It, it. I think it really was challenging. Um, to that. Matter.
1: Well, it must have been exciting for you you know yes, as it was as, very exciting. as a journalist and someone who writes so good for you yeah how do you think the group dealt with examples of countries like Ireland that are so catholic uh who put to a vote the question of marriage equality and just completely ignored the church's position on it
4: yeah i think there were some bishops who are uh, uh i think they you know it was divided the synod, about about things like that, there were some bishops who are ready to acknowledge that that Catholic people uh, don't accept the teaching about marriage that the Church has been promoting. Um, but then there were some who who feel, well, we didn't, we weren't strong enough in our opposition to same sex marriage, and if we were stronger. It, you know, it would have been different So it was divided
1: it was mm. di- and, and that poses, I think, a pretty tough challenge for church leaders Who are trying to preserve a belief system, a doctrine You know, do you as a religious organization change your doctrine Because the followers disagree with you You know, is that a reason to change the belief system and, and the doctrines of faith?
4: right you know that's a very good question, and uh, you know it, it's something that that came up time and again at the synod. And I think that one thing that that I noticed, even the progressive bishops don't realize, is that the reason they need to change the doctrine is not because is not because people oppose it, but why people oppose it. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I think that's an important distinction. And the, the problem is, is that many bishops see, uh, don't want to change the doctrine due to public pressure, but they don't recognize that they they might need to change the doctrine because of Catholic pressure. Catholic people are supporting marriage equality because they are Catholic. Not in spite of being Catholic, they are looking at other Catholic values, other than other than procreation, uh, to support their view of marriage equality for lesbian and gay couples. Mm-hmm. And so, so it's a very, so they're using very Catholic arguments. They're not using the political and legal arguments that the secular gay activists have been using. They using Catholic arguments to support the idea that marriage should be open to lesbian, gay couples.
1: So it's really about it all boils back, as it typically does, to interpretation of scripture, you know, and contextual interpretation, uh-huh. moving away from a literalist interpretation and looking at it how it applies in today's world. Is that mm-hmm. fair?
4: Yes, that's that's one that. In the Catholic tradition, that's that's definitely one plank um, in in the teaching. And in the Catholic tradition, there are other there are other philosophical arguments and traditional arguments uh, arguments from tradition that also go into it. But mm-hmm. scripture is definitely a big is definitely a big one.
1: Mm-hmm. So let's talk about where things are going and and the changes coming. It's you know it's pretty clear. The Pope has a different idea about LGBT people in general. He's all but said that. Uh, and you mentioned the product that comes from this. It's called an, apost-
4: an apostolic exhortation.
1: Okay. And and wasn't it in that same type of publication that Pope Benedict described LGBT people as intrinsically disordered?
4: Uh, well, it was a similar type of document, yes. And that uh, it was a document from uh, from the Vatican, um, so yes, it was, and that was in 1986. But at the meeting, at the synod, uh, you know, we heard bishops for the first time, and a number of them, saying, this language is, is harmful, this language is is inaccurate, this language has to change.
1: So I want to go back just for a second. You mentioned that that was written in 1986. hmm Who wrote that?
4: The, the author of it was Cardinal Ratzinger oh, Okay, um, at the time when he was head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith before he became Pope Benedict. Got it. Um, you know, what, like over 20, uh, almost 20 years later. Uh, but it was signed by Pope John Paul II, the document.
1: Okay. So it had the Pope's endorsement, perhaps not his exact words. But, right. but then when, when the then Cardinal became Pope, you know, he owned it. It was his, and and he didn't take any any move to change that or or reinterpret it at all. I mean, I, th- right. I think he he believed it. At least that's what he said, right?
4: Right, right. He he was definitely behind using that that kind of language. And I think you know to explain Pope Benedict, I think we have to remember that Pope Benedict Cardinal Ratzinger was a theologian and a scholar, and not a pastoral person, mm-hmm. not. Um, um, not someone who had a lot of experience working with people, so I think that his use of terms and terminology, you know, came from a very academic point of view, and so I don't think he was aware of how the of how people how people's lives are affected by uh, certain terms and certain la- use of language.
1: Almost the polar opposite of a Jesuit.
4: Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And and this Jesuit who's Pope in particular, who really is, you know, a man of the people, and you know, he, he would take public transportation to work when he was Archbishop of 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 uh, Santiago in uh not Santiago, I'm sorry, Buenos Aires in um in Argentina.
1: And yeah. and certainly continuing that same tradition, you know, he lives
4: He lives simply now simply um, now in and meets ordinary people. Yeah. Um, you know he um, his his famous line, one of his first ad- addresses to bishops uh, was that he wanted he uh, wanted bishops to smell like the sheep, he said. you know sometimes we use the term that the bishop is a shepherd. Mm-hmm. And, and he says he didn't want bishops who have a princely, Attitude. He wanted bishops smell like the sheep that were that were living the life of the people.
1: Well, let's hope that they start paying attention to that and yes. and and move toward that. You know what? What's your speculation as you look out in the future? Going back to that language, intrinsic, intrinsically disordered. It, it's very very damaging. Do you think that the Pope is going to remove that language in his tenure?
4: I th- I'm not sure the Pope has the power to do it, but it's interesting that the Pope has never used that language, you know, in his um, almost three years as in his, into his papacy now. And I, I think honestly, I think it's going to be a a case where we're going to start to see new language being used, and that language is just going to die away, you know, from disuse.
1: Good. Well, I think one of his greatest challenges is going to be getting his um, cardinals and bishops in line with his thinking. Uh, and, I, you know, it's like moving—it's greater than moving the Titanic. It's not going to happen overnight. But oh, right. there, every time a cardinal in this country, for example, speaks out and makes a statement like, you're not entitled to communion because this is what you believe, uh, it just reinforces the— inequality there, the lack of acceptance, the lack of inclusivity, and pushes people away. And so I hope that he's able to do that. I hope he's able to grab those guys and say, listen, you work for me, and this is the way we should be talking. Mm-hmm. Is that even realistic to think
4: that... I think, I think it's realistic in, um, in a few ways. Uh, I think one is that, you know, the people the men who he has been appointing as bishops, uh, particularly here in the United States, are people who have his point of view, who have his pastoral approach. You know, one of the bi- one of the bishops at the synod is the new archbishop of Chicago, uh, Blaze Supich. At a press conference, I was able to ask him. Uh, I said, "Do you think?" Uh, well, let, let me back up and say that at the synod. They had married couples speaking to the bishops, making presentations about marriage and family life. So I was able to ask Archbishop Supich at a press conference if, uh, if he felt the bishops would have benefited from hearing testimonies from lesbian and gay people and lesbian and gay couples. And he said, yes, they would have. You know, he acknowledged that that would have been a better idea to let lesbian and gay people speak to the bishops. So, uh, you know, I think we're going to see more and more bishops like Archbishop Supic being appointed.
1: Good for you! That's great that you're able to pose those questions out there, and perhaps you're going to cause them to think differently just by uh-huh. having been there. That's terrific! <laughs> uh huh. Terrific. Yeah, so. Uh-huh another story that's that's come out uh, after this big meeting now and, and it actually happened i think during the the meeting of the bishops is a senior priest a monsignor at the vatican came out as being a gay man and introduced the world to his boyfriend or at least said he had a partner and then he was a, he was he was terminated he was defrocked Right. Um, and, and he's had some very, very strong criticism of the homophobia and the hypocrisy that exists in the Vatican. Can you speak to that a little bit? What's what's going on with this guy?
4: Yeah. Well, I think it was a moment of truth for him that he uh, felt he could no longer live a, a double life uh, and and wanted to live a more authentic life. And so he... He felt that it was important to to acknowledge his orientation, and then even acknowledge a, a relationship. And I think he did it as as he said it. I think you know it was true that he did it right before the synod started, so that it would be on the synod uh, participants' minds that that there are gay men in the priesthood. That there are gay and lesbian people serving the church. And um, you know, to to make it to make that reality um, more present to uh to the bishops as they were having discussions about this.
1: Well he certainly did that. Uh and it cost him his career, which which yeah. is Understandable in some respects I mean, if the rule of the church is celibacy Then that should apply to straight and gay And everybody in between uh, You know, we can debate the Right like, The validity and, and worth of that As a separate issue But the rule is a rule And that's a condition of employment And so I get that It's going to be interesting to see What comes from this And, and his story as, as he tells more um, Yes again, hopefully it'll get people to talk I mean, that, that's how change happens Right There's a lot of folks and we've talked about this before, I believe, who really struggle with trying to reconcile who they are with their faith and make both of those things work. And the, and the tragedy, I think, is not just with Catholics, but, in, but Mormons too, people are making choices. In order to live with myself and accept myself, I'm going to step away from my faith or step away from the church, which I always think is tragic uh, because faith can be a really good thing in people's lives. What's your advice for... LGBT Catholics who are having a hard time reconciling what they're being told to believe and the rules and accepting themselves.
4: Right. Well, my advice for anyone who's having a debate about that is that they seek out a supportive spiritual counselor, someone who's going to accept them for their, uh, accept their sexual orientation as a given and as something that is positive in their lives, and I think that that what um, what they what people need to decide is, you know, is being part of the church harmful to my relationship with God, or is it helping my relationship with God? And if it's being harmful, the, the important thing is not church membership. The important thing is relationship with God. And if after discerning with a spiritual counselor that it's harmful and they feel they have to leave maybe for a while, maybe forever uh, leave the church um, I I think that that's what they have to do they have to follow their conscience
1: So where can people go to learn more about LGBT accepting organizations within the Catholic Church? Uh, Certainly New Ways Ministries is a place to go. Are there others in the country?
4: Sure, there are. Uh, They could come to our website, newwaysministry.org, or they could look up our blog, Bondings 2.0. And they could also um, look, there are other Catholic organizations. Uh, There's a group of parents, Catholic parents of LGBT people called Fortunate Families. There's a national organization of LGBT Catholics called Dignity USA. There's a Catholic social justice organization that works on LGBT issues called Call to Action. And there are countless um, gay-friendly parishes around the country. If they come to our website, they can find some that are near, uh, near their home.
1: Fantastic. And if you miss those websites, we'll have them all on our website at OutBeatNews.com. We've been talking with Francis DiBernardo, who is the Executive Director of New Ways Ministry. Francis, it's always great to talk with you, and thank you for providing the insight on what's going on in the Catholic Church.
4: Well, I'm greatly appreciative of this opportunity. Thanks, Greg. It was a great talk.
1: And that brings us to the end of our hour. My thanks to Amy Nutt, Wayne Mains, and Francis DiBernardo for being with us tonight. Tune in next Sunday night for a very special Outbeat Extra featuring an evening of healing music performed by our own Sheridan Golden friends. That'll air at 8 p.m. and only here on KRCB Radio. In the meantime, from all of us on the Outbeat Radio team, have a happy and safe Thanksgiving holiday. And thanks for spending your Sunday night with us. Outbeat News in Depth is hosted and produced by Greg Moralia exclusively for KRCB Radio. You can listen to our shows on demand on iTunes and on our website at OutBeatNews.com. And be sure to follow us all week long on our Facebook page and Twitter feed for the latest LGBT news from here in the North Bay and beyond.